Um, <laughs> so this morning we're carrying on our, our series. We're actually wrapping up our series this morning, I think, on Mark, looking at some of the questions and conversations in the Gospel of Mark. And as we've been saying throughout the series, these, these questions are unique. Um, they're, they're the words of Jesus, and in, in that sense, they're, they're living words. They're words that are still alive and present to us today. And it's particularly, I think, um, clear, I guess, in, in, a, in the season of Easter, in the season of Ascension, which was on Thursday, and in Pentecost, which is coming up on sun, next Sunday, the sense of, of Christ as um, a man who is risen, who is reigning, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who is at work today. So we can expect that he is present to us and present with us. And hopefully we may hear from him. So uh, this passage that I felt drawn to speak on today is from Mark 8, which is the feeding of the 4,000. Uh, I better get my, my Bible iPhone Bible out um, before I get too far into it. Sorry. Yeah, pa- uh, so yeah, Mark 8, the feeding of the 4,000, not the feeding of the 5,000. It's a bit confusing because there's two versions in Mark. Let's get the right version. Oh, I'm so sorry about this. Um, it's interesting that Mark Mark and Matthew both have two versions of the story and, and Luke and John only choose to tell it once. I think I think there's something important about the fact that they tell it twice. Mark and, and Mark probably wrote it first, so Matthew copies him. Um there's something significant about the way Mark couples these stories together. It's like he really wants to emphasize this point and he doesn't want us to miss it. Not only sort of in a, so not a literary sense, but a theological sense. There's a reason why there's two stories. Um, so we'll consider some of that in a moment. But before we, before we do, do any of that, um, I do have some slides. I'm not sure if they're going to appear or not. Um, but if not, it's just the, just the text. So I'll read it aloud so we can get familiar with the story. So this is Mark 8, and I'm reading from the NIV. Oh, good. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came 
and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them and got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. (laughs) Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? So quite a few big questions in that passage. Um, The one that I'm really wanting to look at, though, is how many loaves do you have? Which sounds like a relatively mundane question, but it it happens to be the the question that Jesus asks in both of the miracle stories, the exact same question. How many loaves do you have? And I love this question. I love it because it's so concrete in the face of such um, evasive questions that the disciples ask. So the disciples, I think... I may be being unfair, but it seems like they're they're trying to evade responsibility for this crowd of people. So they ask this rhetorical question, like a question that's not really in in search of an answer. Uh, Whereabouts are the people going to get bread in the wilderness? Like, they're not going to get bread. There's nowhere for them to get bread. It's a a question that already has the answer. But Jesus comes back to this, um, this rhetorical question with a very concrete, very specific question. How many loaves do you have? What do you have? So the disciples are trying to pour cold water on Jesus' compassion and he just dodges that and asks them a very specific question. In other words, uh, don't, don't tell me what you don't have, don't tell me what you need, but tell me what do you have. Let's talk about what you've already got. So the disciples uh, can't be, you know, they see that Jesus can't be thrown off the trail, so they decide to meet uh, Jesus' question with a, a very honest and very specific answer. But I think perhaps with like a, um, it doesn't have it in the text, but maybe like an undertone of, of pessimism or irony or something like that. They're like, well, we have seven, Jesus. We've got seven loaves, <laughs> if you really want to know. Like seven, that's all, literally, seven. Enough for maybe us, but not all of these people. And so just as Jesus has done in the last miracle, he says, okay, calmly, every, everybody sit down. And he um, takes action and begins to pass out the bread. So Mark narrates both of these stories with this uh, of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, I think with an eye towards the Last Supper. It's almost like we have to understand that, that Mark sees these two stories a bit like binoculars that are looking at the Last Supper story. And you see that in, even in the words that Mark uses, in the order of words that Mark uses, he says that Jesus... What Jesus does with the bread, he takes, blesses, breaks, and gives the bread to the people. 
which is the exact same order of words that he uses in the Last Supper. He takes the bread, blesses the bread, breaks the bread, and gives the bread. And the people eat their fill. And the disciples collect up all of these fragments of leftovers and bring together um, you know, what was seven loaves of bread becomes seven large baskets of bread. So, yeah, we're probably all familiar with that story, and maybe the the wow is a bit lost on us. But that the the thing is that's um, and it goes without saying, but it, that's that's a kind of physically impossible thing to do. Um, to to do that with seven loaves of bread is a, a miracle. I mean, my bread certainly doesn't do that. Um, my my money definitely doesn't do that. Um, in fact, my kiwi saver seems to do the opposite of that at the moment. Um, I don't know. It seems to be this thing of an impossible situation that Jesus does. He overcomes the laws of physics, the laws of nature. And also the, the story touches this very core human need. If we're to believe Maslow's theory that um, we'll, we'll lose interest in every other thing and every other desire if we don't have food. Food is a primary need. It's, it's a fundamental need. Without it, we don't live. And Jesus doesn't overlook this. He doesn't dismiss this fact. He's concerned for these basic things. I think some holy men, um, some gurus, maybe have this um, way of showing their uh, superiority to the needs of the body. Um, maybe that's how they show their holiness. But Jesus recognizes and affirms that we are human and we have human needs. Needs for food, for rest, for sleep. And he recognizes that even for himself. Which is a wonderful truth, I think, to hold on, even from this passage. So, um, unlike his disciples, Jesus is compassionate, Jesus sees, and Jesus responds. Now, that, that in itself maybe could be a, a, a sermon. You know, that could, we, could, we could roll with that and think about that a bit more. But the, the question that I have really been pondering out of this passage is how Jesus deals with the, the sort of deficit mentality of his disciples, the, the thinking about everything is not enough, the scarcity mindset that they have. Because I see myself in the disciples, I think probably we all do, um, this kind of inclination to incredulity at, the, at what Jesus is asking or the things that he expects, you know, in the face of impossible situations. It's kind of like, are you kidding me? Like, I can't do that. Um, and I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about these categories, I guess, of impossibles, like the impossible ideas in our heads, the impossible realities, the impossible dreams, and impossible scenarios. And I've been thinking, well, what's What's the big one for me? What's the big impossible in my life? And perhaps the biggest one, the one that most constantly plagues me, um, is this seemingly impossible idea that the planet that we're living on can be saved, can be restored, can be healed, that, that the ecosystems, the biosphere can be turned around. And I don't mean to use this space, this kind of sacred space to preach doom and gloom, that's not what I'm about, but, but I'm just saying that for me, uh, that's the one that, that sits with me, this, this sense where I get stuck um, with the sense of the impossible. And why do I find that so 
challenging to believe? Why do I find it so hard to believe? Well, um, just in my lifetime alone, the rate of species and extinction, so whole species going extinct, when compared to the, the geological norm, so the normal rate of species extinctions, is a thousand, several thousand times faster at the moment than it, than it has been in the past. So we're in this thing called a, a great mass extinction event. We're, we're all living in it, we're living through it. And it's, there's been six of them, but this one is, yeah, number six. And it, actually ever since April, like last month of this year, it's become officially known as the Anthropocene, which, which is a geological term to describe this particular epoch that we're living in right now. And dates vary on, on when the Anthropocene should be traced as beginning, um, but there's sort of broad consensus that around 1945 with the, the detonation of the first atomic bomb, the Trinity um, bomb in the New Mexico desert, is seen as kind of the beginning of the Anthropocene. So the reason geologists are interested in that kind of stuff is that they're interested in, in tracing the study of what's visible in the fossil records. So what's, what gets left behind in the fossil records, and they, they use dating that way. The Anthropocene is the point at which we begin to leave a significant mark in the geological record. And the massive changes that, that humans have wrought on, on this planet uh, are going to be visible in the geological record for as long as the Earth endures. So, um, and so yeah, from a geological point of view, the Anthropocene is just nothing short of a total catastrophe for the biosphere. And that's a catastrophe for society as well. So what is yeah, worrying, I guess, for me, if I can just go on for a, a, a moment more, <laughs> is that so much of this also seems to be kind of locked in, you know, like it's like we can't, we can't immediately change some of the things that have already happened. They're already locked in, things like ocean acidification, which are so kind of baked into the system, even if we could figure out a way to, I don't know, blot out the sun or, um, <laughs> or melt glaciers again or whatever it is. Um, there's certain things that are just already cooked into the system which won't change and may sort of dramatically accelerate species extinctions. So all of this is terrifying to me. This is the kind of stuff that, that freaks me out, the kind of stuff that, that I that lie awake at night sometimes thinking about, thinking about my kids, thinking about the kind of world that they're going to inherit and my grandkids. It may not be me that feels the, the immediate impact of it. Um, but, but this sense of the impossible thing of like, how are we going to, how is any of this ever going to change? What's going to happen in all of this? Like I said, I haven't, haven't come here to preach doom and gloom. I'm just sharing that for me, this is my impossible. This is my thing which I bring to Jesus and say, can't be done, can't change, can't, I, I can't see anything changing with this. Um, and you know, for, for others here or, or on Zoom, um, you may have your own sort of impossible categories of things. And that, that things that feel pressing, things that you bring to Jesus and say, I don't know what to do about this. And that's that's fine, but but for me these are the these are the things that I worry about. And I guess for me more fundamentally, there are the things in my heart which I respond to Jesus with that sense of incredulity. Like I just find it hard to believe, Lord. I find it hard to believe. Um, so I think for me and perhaps for us, I don't know if anyone else is identifying with this. I can identify with this sense. 
and identify with the disciples. So in the aftermath of this event, where they're sitting in the boat, worrying to themselves and to each other that they don't have enough bread. So the, it's, it's a crazy story when you think about it. They've just seen Jesus multiply bread for 5,000 people of a few loaves and fishes, and then he multiplies it again for 4,000 people. He does this impossible thing, you know, totally impossible. <clears throat> as impossible as anything. And they're sitting there worrying that they don't have enough bread. It seems kind of ridiculous, but I guess that's how it feels. I, I, it's like we believe that God is God. You know, we believe that, that he has risen. We believe that he's ascended. We believe that he's reigning. We believe he'll return. I believe all of that. And yet I can sit in the boat worrying about things um, and thinking, well, he can't do anything about that, you know. Um, so in this, in this passage from Mark, I think Jesus notices this pattern, this pattern that I'm sharing with you in my life. He notices that exact same pattern in his disciples, and he, and he calls it to light. He says, let's talk about this. Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still see? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? Do you still not understand who I am? Because if Jesus can multiply bread, which is impossible... What else can he do? If he can create everything, what else can he do? What, where does my impossible sit in the context of the person that I'm, that, you know, of, of Jesus? This, the, the question Jesus is asking, do you still not understand? Do you not understand who I am? Do you not understand who you are in the boat with right now? Last year, um, Pete Huskinson shared a series of prophetic words for the church as we were trying to discern our future as a community. And I've been thinking about them a bit lately, um, and particularly as I was bringing these notes together. Um, for those on Zoom, you might not be able to read it, but you may remember this. Uh, <clears throat> hear the words that, that, that were shared. Open your eyes and see the field. What is in your hand? See what I am about to do. So that was the sense that God was speaking to us. Those simple statements and a question. What's in your hand? And I get the sense that <clears throat> this question is one for us to ponder this morning. This one of what is in your hand. Um, which is a bit like how many loaves do you have? What's in your hand? If we zoom back right to the beginning of the biblical story, or at least the early part, um, when God calls Moses to rescue his people from Egypt, he asks, God asks Moses this exact question, what is in your hand? And Moses is carrying a stick, not just any stick, he's carrying his shepherd's staff, which is his tool, it's his day-to-day -to -day tool. And God asks him to to lay it down, to put it down before him, and put it down before the burning bush. 
And as it hits the ground, it becomes a snake. And then God asks him to pick the snake up by the tail, and as he picks it up, it comes back into a shepherd's staff. So as we consider, I guess, that image, the question of Jesus, and the question that, that was raised with Pete's prayer, um, I wonder what we can learn from all of this, and I, I guess this is what I think. I think it seems that in all these cases, God seems to have this habit or this pleasure maybe in inviting ordinary people into his transformative work. People like the disciples who are just ordinary guys. Um, people like Moses who was at that stage just an obscure shepherd doing his work. God loves to invite people like that. Um, people like me, people like you to surrender the thing we have. Just the thing we have. It, it's, it's how many loaves do you have? What do you actually have? Um, let's start with that. To surrender that stuff to him. Place it in his hands and see what he can do with it. And I guess on that same note, what strikes me is that God seems to be more interested in, in availability than ability. So are we, are we available? You know, like Jesus is inviting his disciples into this process. Like, I can see these people are hungry. I have compassion for these people. He's inviting his disciples to see like he sees and then to use what they have and to partner with him. Be available. And it doesn't really matter how connected you are, how smart you are, how rich you are. Uh, it's really about being available for what God's doing. And then going back to those big planetary concerns that sit in the sit in my impossible basket. <laughs> um, I tend to become unstuck, I guess, when I start thinking that it all relies on me, you know, it all relies on what I need to do and what I can do. That I've got to save the world. Um, a ridiculous thought. Um, that it's all up to me and my meager abilities. But I think even more so I, I with that one, I want I, I I end up not so much worrying about what I can't do because of what I lack, but I actually just end up sitting on my hands, like literally doing nothing because it's like, wow, it's too big, it's too complicated. don't even know where to start. I'm just going to sit here and spend a good few hours worrying and then I'll go to sleep. That'll solve it. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So what's the point in that? Um, I think it's about following God, seeking his lead. So it's not about reneging our responsibility. It's not like the disciples saying, well, there's 4,000 people, Jesus. You can't be, I can't do anything about that. I certainly can't multiply, uh, multiply bread. I can't feed these people. Jesus says, what's in your hand? What have you got? Let's start there. And same with any of those big impossibles. Same with the planetary stuff. Where do you start? With, start with what you have. So let's just, um, almost done, but let's, let's just sit for a moment with these words again. Let's sit with them as open invitations from God this morning, from Pete's words. Open your eyes and see the field. What is in your hand? See what I am about to do.
Now this might seem like an abrupt transition, but <laughs> but we're going to take communion together now. That's how we're going to um, roll from here. And I'd suggest that um, it's not an abrupt transition at all. In fact, it's the only appropriate thing to do at this time. It's the only appropriate thing to do with our impossibles. It's the only appropriate thing to do in response to these words. And let's remember too, I guess, that Mark, like I said, he uses these miraculous stories as not just signs of God's power, not just signs of cool magic tricks that God can do if he feels like it, um, but they're really the deepest revelation of who Jesus is. They are the revelation that God himself has returned to be with his creation. He's returned first to be with Israel with the feeding of the 5,000 and then to be with the Gentiles in the feeding of the 4,000. And these two miracles are like binoculars that allow us to see the meaning of the Last Supper where Jesus takes the bread and blesses it and breaks it and gives it to his disciples. So what, what more is communion or what, what, is, what is communion except a, a recognition of, of who Jesus is? of his power, of his work. Jesus, the one who, who spoke creation into being. Jesus, the one who created the hills that grows the wheat. Jesus, the one who tilts the planet so that we have our seasons. The one who created the sun that it would warm us and grow our food rather than consume us. Jesus, the one who, who is above all and in all. So, yeah, my invitation as we take communion this morning is to let that really be a, a declaration for us of our faith, of our, of, of our faith in a God who has the ability to, to work miracles when we say yes to him.